0: You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Kerry Danes is a consultant forensic psychologist and author. Kerry has worked with people who are high risk and have been involved in serious criminal cases. She talks frankly about her work and how she had to deal with a stalker. I
1: always say I'm not a Stepford psychologist, so I would like to shake things up a little bit. I discovered that I had a stalker in 2011, and he was somebody who would see me on TV in documentaries, and he had set up websites in my name, and he became very, very angry when I didn't want to participate in these websites. What I wanted to do is I wanted to challenge people's assumptions about people who commit crime, people who are victims, people who are forensic psychologists.
2: Kerry Danes has been a practising forensic psychologist for over 20 years, delving into the psyche of some of the most troubled and troubling offenders. You may have seen her in the press or on TVs faking it tears of a crime and various other true crime documentaries that go behind the newspaper headlines. In her new memoir, she unpicks the crime stereotypes and reveals what a career working closely with extreme behaviour has taught her and how it has affected her in her own life. Thank you so much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Kerry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The work you do sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely fascinating. What made you want to go into forensic psychology in the first place?
1: Do you know, believe it or not, I wanted to go into advertising and that's why I (laughs) took a a degree in psychology, but... You make these decisions as an 18-year-old based on all of the wrong things. So I made a life-changing decision in Freshers' Week, and it was purely based, I think, on cider and the effect of hormones because I really fancied a boy in the law class. <laughs> I never got up the courage to speak to him, but I developed a real interest in the law. So I thought, well, how can I marry the law and psychology together? And so forensic psychologists seem to be the way. That
2: is a really great story, actually. I love that. (laughs) Women, you said in your book, which we'll come to in a moment, make up 73% of the membership of the British Psychological Society. Why are women so attracted to the work, do you think?
1: I think part of it is to do with culture and the way that we are expected to behave as, as women. I think that we're expected to be nurturing, to be interested in people and to be just generally involved with others and the workings of their minds. Whereas men are much more socialised to be interested in taking apart machinery rather than people. So I think it's a real shame that we don't have more men in psychology. Yeah. Um, over 80% of forensic psychologists are women. And largely, we work with male offenders. I've specialised in violence and sexual crimes. Well, 96% of all killers are men. Mm -hmm. So I think that it would be really great to have more male voices in forensic psychology. But not necessarily in, you know, media positions or the top positions because people don't realise there are so many women in this area because actually the ones who are spokespeople tend not to be women. (laughs)
2: That is a story of of, Isn't it? of women's careers, actually. Yeah. Absolutely. You've got a new book out, The Dark Side of the Mind. Now, it's an amazing blend of stories from your patients over the years. But also, kind of blending in your own story as well, which I really enjoyed. It's a really, really good read. I was kind of half expecting it to be a textbook, you know, in psychology. And I thought, well, this is probably going to be a little bit, you know, beyond my. It was really readable. It's just telling lots of stories, and it's great. I wanted to write something that was completely
1: different to what we see in the whole true crime genre. So, you know, you've seen them in bookshops and they've usually got covers that are black, white and red, splattered with blood. (laughs) And they're often, I felt, very macho. So you've got criminologists or detectives telling you how great they are. I wanted to write something that was not sensationalist, but gave a true insight into the day-to-day life of being a forensic psychologist and told the stories not of high-profile killers necessarily, but the people that I would come into contact with on a day-to-day basis and whose stories we don't hear about in the media and in the press Mm -hmm. but are actually really important stories if we want to understand crime, criminals and how we
2: tackle these kind of problems as a society. I got a sense from the book that you have been maybe a little bit dismayed about the, the way that mental health is, is handled in group settings, following scripts and using questionnaires and things like oh, that. Oh, dismayed. I've been thoroughly, thoroughly peeved off and disillusioned with
1: the criminal justice system, which is in an absolute state at the moment. It's It's had years of willful neglect, really, I think, under the Tory party. And mental health has always been rather secondary to physical health and I think that we treat people who have got mental health problems as though they're not able to make decisions for themselves and we always look at what their limitations and weaknesses are instead of looking actually at what their strengths are and something I have found in the people that I've worked with particularly in mental health systems is There's huge resiliency. They've got so much to teach each other. They've taught me so much. Mm. So I think that we just need to flip the way that we look at mental health problems, really. I certainly think that it's very human to have mental health problems, and it's very human to have sometimes even quite extreme reactions to abnormal and extreme sets of circumstances.
2: That brings back one of the stories in your book about a patient who taught you that he didn't want to be categorised as having an illness. Mm. He just said, I'm in pain. Yeah, and do you know what? It was such a... It was a moment in... um, A group
1: that we ran, and we we used to run all of these groups. They're pretty much standard for health services and certainly, you know, prisons. It's a way of getting a lot of people, in inverted commas, treated. And it felt like a conveyor belt. You know, it was a manualised treatment programme. So we ran to a script, and he didn't want to comply with that script and we were having a session which was what is mental health and we were looking at different symptoms and uh you know we were we were saying you know these are these are symptoms of of illness and disorder Well, who wants to think of themselves as disordered? Mm -hmm. And he stood up and he said to everybody in the group, these people, they used to call us witch doctors and brainwashers. (laughs) These people are trying to make you think that you're sick in the head. And actually, all of these, you know, we had a whole list of symptoms written on a board. This is all pain and It was just a moment for me. I think that everybody else just thought, oh, you know, what on earth is going on? He was very quickly dismissed. But yeah, actually, mental health problems are just human pain manifest in a way that we as a society find difficult to manage. And he didn't want to think of himself as a schizophrenic, and I fully understand that. Mm -hmm. But he was very willing to work with me to try and understand what had happened to him and what all of his different symptoms, if you want to call it that, meant for him personally. And he had a life of pain and discrimination, and this really had coloured the way that his psychosis had, had manifest. But I think the big reason that he didn't want to accept this diagnostic label is that he felt that it let him off the hook for his offence. He'd killed his brother. He had killed his brother believing that his brother was possessed by demons. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to put in a caveat here. The majority of people who suffer from psychosis, who hear things or see things, are not dangerous. He was in that small group of people who had become violent whilst suffering from, from these uh, delusions and um, hallucinations. But... He wanted to take responsibility for what he'd done. And I felt that that was really, really important. Yeah. And it was just little shifts in language that enabled me to work with him. But he taught me an awful lot.
2: And you met him years after, you said in the book. And he was in a much better state by that time and running a cafe. And one of the big things had been he'd been excluded from a cafe that he'd loved after his mental illness became too much for people to handle. Yeah, I
1: mean, it really is a story of rejection. As he becomes more and more psychotic and more and more disturbed and troubled by, by his beliefs, he is rejected more and more by society. So he was literally thrown out of his home, lost his job and there was a cafe that he used to love going to and he was asked to leave because he was talking to himself Mm -hmm. and it made me think you know if we could just understand more about mental health problems and be less afraid of them we would be able to engage people a lot better And um, I don't think that the tragedy that happened would have happened. So, you know, we, we, we wouldn't have had the event that then feeds into this stigma of people with mental health
2: problems being dangerous. Do you see yourself as a bit of an agitator when it comes to challenging how mental health practices are carried out? Are you trying to change things? Do you know what? I've got something in common with my clients. My
1: clients tend to be rebellious a little bit anti-authority and that's definitely me i always say i'm not a stepford psychologist so i would like to shake things up a little bit and i've worked in great progressive places where i've been allowed to do that but then i've also worked in places that have been so bound really by tick box and jargon and we've we've tried to process people it's been like you know, a factory but for people rather than actually engage with them and their lives and their stories.
2: And differently for each person rather than one-size-fits-all. Oh, I
1: hate the one-size-fits-all approach. And Mm -hmm. the thing is, we're now getting increasing evidence that it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in terms of offending behaviour programmes. There's been some huge failures of offending behaviour programmes. In fact, the sex offender treatment programme was found not only to not have an effect, but to make participants more likely to go on to offend. Mm-hmm. So it actually created victims. But also in mental health services, I think that we alienate people, we exclude
2: people who who want to work in a different way. Stalking is an issue that you feel very strongly oh, yes. about. And you've been very vocal about that in the media. Why is that?
1: Well, I discovered that I had a stalker in 2011. And actually, this man had written to me in 2009 And he was somebody who would see me on TV, in documentaries. And he had set up websites in my name, and he became very, very angry when I didn't want to participate in these websites. So it's a long story, and it's a story that spans 2011 to 2016. It was a horrendous time in my life because... I was afraid, and it was really quite ironic for a woman that had spent a lot of time working with dangerous people. I was afraid to go outside of my home because I'd never set eyes on this man and I didn't know whether he was behind me in the queue at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. I was afraid at home because he'd made it clear that he knew where I lived and he knew that I was single and he knew what clothes I was wearing, things like that. So the safest place I felt was at work. And I changed my life because of that. So, really, I responded to his intimidation by becoming smaller and becoming silent. So, I stopped going on TV. I changed the way that I worked. And I just generally tried to keep a low profile. Now, of course, it wasn't my behavior that was the problem, it was his behavior. Really? Yes. And eventually it came to a head. I found my cat dead and somebody had written Jill Dando on my fence Ooh. which of course yeah, yeah murdered crime watch presenter and also, and this is the comedy element, because there's always a comedy element if you look for it, he actually sent me a bill for the time that he'd spent stalking me. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets a bill for, for being stalked? And it was over £26,000, and it itemised things like searches that he'd had done on my properties. And I, I, You know, I say, I liken it to, it's like Harold Shipman charging you for palliative care. Yes. <laughs> So, and it was just a moment where I thought, do you know what, this is utterly ridiculous. And I'm not going to be silent. I'm actually going to make a great big fuss. And I'm not going to avoid media. I'm going to use media as a platform. And I find that when you start to raise your voice, some people won't hear it. Some people will dismiss it or ignore it. I mean, I did have a difficult time really being taken seriously by the police. But other people and often other women will hear it and then you become a multitude of voices. Mm. So I did some work for the Susie Lamplu Trust during National Anti-Stalking Week. I've just become a member of the National Stalking Consortium and we collectively have campaigned for better legislation around the issue of stalking. Training for police, which I now do myself, yeah? So I can tell police exactly what my experiences were and how they could have made that better for me. And uh, you we've got the, the Stalking Protection Bill through Parliament. So the next stage is looking at Stalking Protection Orders. But it just goes to show just the difference that you can make when you refuse to be silenced yeah. by somebody. And was he caught in the end? Well, court, this was part of my my issue, he was given a harassment warning, what they call a police information notice, which is a bit like a slap on the wrist, really. It says, don't do it again in the future. It was another piece of paper to add to his other extensive collection of papers and research about me. And when you're dealing with a crime like stalking, which is underpinned by obsession and persistence, it's just not effective. No. And in actual fact, I discovered that he'd been given harassment warnings for his conduct towards other women. So clearly not effective for him. So now, by law... The police are not allowed to give harassment warnings to stalkers because it's been acknowledged that this is just something that feeds the obsession. Mm -hmm. It's just not something... And it's a waste of time. Yeah, and it doesn't prioritise victim safety. You know, there were times when I genuinely believed that there was a good possibility of me ending up as one of the crime scene pictures that I used to look at. Yeah, Nobody and, should
2: feel that. And in some respects, you're so close to that that it must have made it even more real to some yeah, extent. Yeah, because
1: I had more information than was than was helpful. Yes. <laughs> so I knew anecdotally in 2011 what has been confirmed by research in 2016, and that is that 96% of all murders of women are preceded by some form of stalking behaviours. Mm-hmm. So if we take that behaviour seriously at the point at which it is reported to us and we take actions to prevent the the accused at that point from doing what they're doing and, and ensure victim safety, we can save lives. Yeah. Yeah, they can
2: save I agree. Lives. I agree. Mm. You mentioned humor earlier on. Yeah, and there is quite a lot of humor—dark humor, humor maybe—but humor in yeah. the book. You know, it's quite. How do you manage to find it's, the light side of what you, you, know, you do? It's, I know this is it—the
1: dark side of the light side of the mind. <laughs> People are a little bit confused by the book because it's like, oh, it's true crime, but it's also memoir, and it's mm. got humor in it. It's got laugh, hopefully, out loud moments in it. Yeah, that was really important to me because. That's me and that's how I get through life. And actually, if you talk to anybody who works, you know, in the ambulance service, the police service, you you know, any emergency service or in the military, a shared sense of humour is really what bonds you as a group and it's what gets you through. And I felt that for that not to be reflected in the book would not give people a true understanding of what it's like to be a forensic psychologist. So I talk in Chapter 2 about something that happened. It's a long story, but put it this way, I had a rather disastrous event in an assessment and the assessment was a suicide assessment. So I was assessing somebody's risk of killing themselves potentially in prison, serious stuff. And both myself and the man who I was assessing, who was seriously considering suicide at that point, just ended up rolling in the floor in hysterics with laughter. Mm -hmm. And it was grossly inappropriate and fantastically brilliant all at the same time. Because it breaks down the barrier
2: immediately.
1: And he really didn't want to talk about what had happened to him and why he was feeling so incredibly hopeless. Because it's a big decision, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not something that's taken lightly that you want to end your life. But we laughed and then he started to cry. It was, it was a, a huge cathartic moment for yeah, him. Yeah. And he started to tell me his, his story. And at the end of it, I said to him, look, how much do I need to be worried about you? What do I need to put in place to ensure that, that, that you are safe? And he said to me, well... All I can tell you is, it won't be today. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that I solved his problem. Well, you kind of great. made his
2: day, didn't you? In yeah, some respects. Yeah. But I, I, it was
1: just—it was just a beautiful moment. And I've always used humour, often to, you know, to break up fights, and to diffuse situations, and just to, to access people's emotions. Yeah. And I use humour to cope myself. Yeah.
2: No, it's true. It is a great way of coping. It's a great way of reaching out and touching somebody, really, just making friends with them in some respects.
1: Yeah. And again, I think that if you follow the Stepford psychology rule book, then you might feel uncomfortable with that. But it's such a it's such a fantastic tool and it's such a good way to build rapport Mm.
2: with others. Oh, I completely agree. If there's a message that you want this book to deliver to people, what would it be? What I wanted to do is I
1: wanted to challenge people's assumptions about people who commit crime, people who are victims, people who are forensic psychologists. So I want people to really get past this notion that, you know, we have clear-cut good guys and bad guys, or that people are either mad or they are bad, and really see the more nuanced stories that I have to grapple with, and the conflict that that leads you with. It's not to remove accountability for anybody's actions or, you know, anybody breaking the law, but I think that when we start to think of people as human beings, then we're we're in a much better place, really, to start looking for effective solutions. At the moment, we've got Boris Johnson, who's announced his new attitude on crime which is he wants criminals to feel terror. He wants more people in prison. He wants longer sentences. There's nothing new about this at all. No, it's been happening over and over again. It's been happening for the last 30 years and it's getting us precisely nowhere. And it's very easy to get on board with Boris Johnson's rhetoric because you think, yes, who doesn't want, Mm. you know... Safer streets. Yes, safer streets. Mm. The thing is... Everything that he's proposing is scientifically proven to increase crime rates, so it creates victims. That, to me, is unacceptable. I became a forensic psychologist because I wanted to have some sort of contribution to a world with less victims in it. So we've got to climb down from this anger that we feel this very human need for revenge and retribution. And we need to think a little bit more coolly and logically. Yeah. I call it the eyeball in the soup moment.
2: Yes, and that <laughs> is a story in your book as well, yeah. which, as I said earlier, thoroughly recommend Dark Side of the Mind. It is absolutely brilliant. Thank you. What projects are you working on at the moment, Carrie? Well,
1: as I said, I've just joined the National Stalking Consortium. So we're going to be... Um, Highlighting the issue of the psychological impact of being stalked. People often think that unless somebody physically attacks you, it's really not significant or relevant. It is. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be highlighting that. We are going to be pushing through, hopefully, stalking protection orders which are specifically for making people safe when they're being stalked by people that maybe they haven't had any other form of contact with, they haven't had a relationship with, and therefore they don't have access to civil injunctions, that that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on the paperback and my book comes out in February. So I'm going to be doing some talks around that and I've got some new TV coming out as well. Oh that's yeah, interesting. Sky are launching a new crime channel, and so you'll be able to catch me in the first week on a documentary that's called Conman, and it's about Britain's most prolific conman. Is so that, that someone
2: very, very clever who's been conning people?
1: It's it. Would I say that he's very, very clever? He's very dedicated, and um, I think it's not so much him being clever; he's just got a very intuitive persuasion about him. <laughs> Yeah, but he's caused absolute havoc. He's, he's similar to, do you know the film Catch Me If You Can? Yes, brilliant yeah, film. That's exactly what UK, I was thinking about, He's actually. a UK version of that. He's somebody with many, many different personas, personalities, and many different ways of extracting people's money from them. So it's a documentary that's fronted by Martin Brunt, the Sky crime correspondent, but I, I pop up there. Ah, well, that would be something
2: worth waiting for. Well, may you go on very long working and doing what you're doing because I think you're helping a lot of people. Thank Kerry you. Kerry Deans, thank you very much for coming in and speaking to us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that was Kerry Danes talking to Linda Ness. As I said when I was talking to
2: Kerry, I really do love her book, The Dark Side of the Mind. It is so readable. You know, it's it's not a dry psychology book. It's it's a story about case histories but she also as i mentioned in the interview weaves her own story into it and talks about you know her own life as she was meeting the patients and the people that she was dealing with fascinating book if you're interested in
0: well life in general and and potentially psychology it's a, it's a fascinating read especially having to have a stalker as well that's really really frightening and to to talk about that is good and also I mean, that does stay with you for a long time, doesn't it?
2: But as she said, you do have to have to laugh, you know, and the funny side of that was when the stalker charged her for his time. I mean, it's not
0: funny at all when you think about it, but kind of amusing, really. Well, she sounds an incredible lady and jealous again that you got to speak to her and I didn't. You should be more available then, really. I <laughs> <laughs> Always on holiday, that's your problem. <laughs> You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.